Hello and welcome to Spec Speak Science, the Spec Certiprep podcast hosted by senior application scientist Patricia Atkins. In this episode, join Spec Certiprep as we look into the art and science of wine. Winemaking is a process that is thousands of years old starting in the Neolithic period. Over the centuries, the process of making wines become a marriage of art and chemistry. Science governs all the steps in wine production, from where grapes are grown to how wine is bottled and stored. With that, here's Patricia Atkins for this installment of Spec Speak Science. Hi, and welcome to the Art and Chemistry of Wine. Today we're going to talk about all the chemistry of wine and the art of wine making. Now, white making is actually viniculture, the science and study of all aspects of grape cultivation and production. And what goes into to harvesting grapes? Well, it depends on where you are. Good grapes need good soil, good seasons, good atmosphere, and that's called a terroir, or the, it's affected by the season, the weather, minerals, the time of harvest, the pruning methods, the acidity of the soil. So all of this goes into the quality, the aroma, and the flavor of wine. So you've always heard, oh, this is a, a valley grape, or this is a mountain grape, or this is from France or California, and they have different flavors. That's because of all of this character that goes into the harvesting and growing of grapes and the making of wine. Now, when you harvest grape will actually affect some of its levels of important chemistry. Most importantly, sugar, or they say percent bricks. This is usually about 15% or more bricks, and the later you harvest in the season, the more sugar. If you've ever heard about ice wine, they leave certain grapes on the vine till the first frost. All of that sugar gets condensed down. It's a very sweet product. Also, harvest time affects your acid levels or your tartaric acid levels and your pH. You can also affect the tannin levels, the, the seed color and taste by when it's harvested. And how you harvest it. Is it a hand harvested process? Do you remove the stems? Or is it an automatic process or a mechanical process where the stems and all go along with it? Now for white wines, they usually tend to leave the stems intact, but for red wines, the stems tend to be removed. If you think about different types of wines, we're talking about varietals. And there are over 10,000 varieties of grapes in the world. The most common species of grape is Vitis vinifera, and it's almost all European varietals. Every continent, except for Antarctica, has this grape grown on it. Now, the ancestor of modern wine is Vistus sylvestris, and this is the ancestor of what we consider to be the modern, modern grapes. Now, grapes are used 71% of the time as wine, 27% of the time as fresh fruit, and 2% as dried fruit. And the top wine-producing regions are Italy, France, Spain, the U.S., and Argentina. Now, it's very interesting. Uh, back in the late 1800s, there was the, the Great Wine Blight, and a disease basically wiped out quite a bit of the wine stocks. So many of the wines of today are grafted rootstock from when the original wines uh, rootstocks were diminished and obliterated by this great wine blight. Now the chemistry of a grape, if you look at what chemicals are in it, it's about 70 to 90% water, about 18 to 25% sugars like glucose and fructose, about 03 to 1.5% of organic acids like malic acid, 0.7% amino acids, and then you have other things like potassium, some esters, some polyphenols, uh, and some trace amounts of 
um, vitamins and minerals. And you need two and a half pounds of grapes to create a bottle of wine. Then you have your flavor and your fragrance compounds. If you're looking at a Cabernet Sauvignon or Sauvignon Blanc, you're talking about the um, methoxyprirazines. These are the earthy, grassy, bell pepper kind of flavors, the pea and earth kind of, of flavors. Now, if you're talking about a floral wine, something that has scents of roses and, and flowers, like a Riesling or a Gewürzamine or a Muscat, then you're talking about some, some monoterpenes. These are things like your linalool and your nerol and geraniol. These are those floral fragrance terpenes. If you're drinking a Chardonnay or a Pinot Noir, you're talking spice, uh, rose, vanilla, things like vanillin, uh, damascarone. These are norisoprenoids, and they'll give you those kind of heady, spicy flavors. And if you have kind of a little bit of a stink or a little bit of funk to it, Maybe you, you have a little bit of a funky wine, something's kind of oniony, garlicky. Those are usually thiols or mercaptans. And if you're talking about a port, you're drinking a nice port, it has a tobacco or a chocolate taste, you're talking about sugar compounds like glycosides. At the start of the winemaking process is crushing the grapes. You liberate the juice from the grape, and you're left with what they call the must. That's the juice, the skins, the seeds, and the pulp. And the must contains natural molds and native yeast. Now, natural is not necessarily better. Some of these will compete for winemaking yeast that you want in your process to make the wine that you, you're expecting to make. Your grape components are crushed, and then you select your winemaking method and your variety of wines. For white wines, like I said, you want to leave the stems intact. You want to increase those tannins and you ex reduce exposure to the color of the wine from the skins. So you can actually make a white wine out of a, a red skin grape or a pink skin grape. You just don't leave those skins in contact with the wine itself. And the skins are directly removed in the winemaking process. For rosé wines, red skin grapes with minimal skin contact. So the skin is left in contact for a little while, but then they pull, pull the skins out. And you can use white and red grapes. Then you have red wines where the stems are usually removed. You don't add those tannins, but you encourage the contact of the skin with the wine to varying degrees. Then you add some st stabilizers into the wine, usually something like potassium metabisulfate or um, some other different additives, most commonly like a Campton tablet. And this will then control the levels of sodium potassium in the wine. Commercial wines have about 20 to 40 ppm natural wines about 6 ppm. So this is where you hear about the sulfites in wine. This will also pro produce sulfur, sulfur dioxide and this will kill the native yeast. This is what you're killing off the, the yeast that came along with the must. And it's an antioxidant. It will bind with acetaldehyde, it binds with anthocyanins, and in red wines that can be a little bit of a problem because it will also then bind to the tannins as well. So the, uh, you do need some sulfites in wine, but uh, many countries require it to be put on labels. So in 1987 in the US, you needed a warning label that says contains sulfites. And 2005 in the EU, you needed a label saying that, that there were sulfites in your wine. And all wines have some sulfites in it. Sweets and whites have actually more than the reds. And the formation, uh, fermentation process will add anywhere from six to 40 ppm of sulfites in it. 
Now, the U.S. levels that are allowed for sulfites are about 350 ppm. Now, if you get one of those headaches, it's usually a red wine headache. And it occurs after drinking as little as one glass of red wine. And it's usually blamed on sulfites. Well, usually, though, only a very small population is allergic to sulfites. And they're people who tend to have asthma. And what happens where you get that really red wine headache is actually from unmetabolized acetaldehyde. So the compound acetaldehyde does not always get completely metabolized by, by the body, and this can happen with any alcohol, and then you get your headaches. Other possible causes are the histamines or the tannins, which can give you headaches. Uh, you can also have different strains of yeast or bacteria that will give you headaches. When you finally have your must and you're in this winemaking process, you have the cap. That's everything that floats on the top. That's the skin, the seeds, the top of the juice, some carbon dioxide. And what you do is you call punch down the must. This is when you force the juice to mix with the skins. For a red wine, this is where you get your color and your flavor extraction. You introduce oxygen to the yeast to encourage fermentation. And you also put in your additives to prevent any harmful bacteria growth. You also need to lower the must temperature. You want to preserve some of those delicate aroma compounds and flavor compounds. You want to increase the production of esters and to keep the yeast growing. For red wines, you want to keep it about 22 to 25 degrees Celsius. For white wine, it wants to be a little cooler, about 15 to 18 degrees Celsius. And this is when you add selective yeast. This is the beginning of primary fermentation. It can take about two weeks and it converts most of the sugar to ethanol in your wine. And of course, that's the most important chemical reaction in winemaking, converting your, your sugars to, to alcohol and CO2. So your fermentation reaction determine what you end up with as a final product. So your bacteria, your yeast, consumes one compound and excretes a different product. So if you have fruit, such as sucrose, fructose, glucose, and you add yeast, you get ethanol, alcohol. If you have milk, which is lactose, and you add bacteria, and the firm, you ferment it, you get cheese. If you have flour, which are a whole mix of uh, sugars and dextrins, and you add yeast, you get bread. And if you have alcohol or ethanol, and you add bacteria and oxygen, then you get vinegar or acetic acid. We need to stop for a second. Oh. Okay. Yeah, my computer, my computer froze. Let's talk about sugar in wine. The sugar, sugar in wine levels considered to be percent bricks. 1% brick or 1 degree of bricks is 1% sugar or 0.55% ethanol. Your sugar level ultimately affects your alcohol content. So the sugars fuel fermentation and it's your basically your non-fermentable sugars. These non-fermentable sugars will determine your sweetness. These do not completely go away. So you don't ever have a completely dry wine. So things like arabinose and xylose are still present after fermentation. What you will have is sometimes sugar is supplemented. You'll hear about sucrose being added to boost fermentable sugar content to boost the alcohol content. That's how come you have some, some uh, very high content, like 17 or 18 percent 
uh, alcohol content because they've had to add sucrose to form to force the formation of, of ethanol. So your fermentable sugars, the ones actually will turn into alcohol, are glucose. That's one of the primary sugars of wine, and it's the first sugar metabolized by the yeast. And the glucose will actually taste a little less sweet than the fructose. So you have a higher percentage of glucose at the beginning of the ripening of the grape, and then you increase the, the ripening with the sucrose. At harvest, you're looking from the, the glucose transitioning into fructose. So fructose happens when you over-ripen the grains, you get fructose. And this is twice as sweet as glucose. This is important for dessert wines. Then you have sucrose, which is very minimal in wine, except for maybe champagne or sparkling wines when it actually gets added. Alcohol, the alcohol content of wine. How much alcohol? Well, you can have up to 18% without adding any sucrose. And then if you get above that 15, 16, 17, 18%, then you've actually had to add the sucrose into it to boost the alcohol content. During fermentation, you have a little bit around 9% alcohol to uh, prevent bacterial growth. So you need at least 9% or more so you don't grow something called acetylobacter or the mother of vinegar. The mother of vinegar, if it gets into your wine, will turn your wine to vinegar. Your target, though, is about 24 degrees bricks or 13% alcohol. But the final ethanol content is by variety. If you have your normal table wine, you're talking anywhere from 8 to 14%. A rosé is usually about 10. A dry white is about 11. A white sparkling will be about 12. A pinot noir, anywhere from like 11 to 14. That's the same as a cabernet. A dessert wine, maybe 14 to 20. A port, though, is about 20%. So that it's a very high amount of ethanol in a port. So after you've done your fermentation, and now you need to... to uh, press the grapes. This pressure removes the juice from the pulps and the skin. You get about 15 to 30% more juice than just draining it. And the pressed juice has a little bit lower acidity, a higher pH than the drained juice. And you get, the, get red wines that are pressed after fermentation, but white wines are pressed before you ferment them. So pressing the different uh, grapes and all the different must releases different compounds from the layers of the grapes. And at this time, you also will adjust the pH from anywhere from 3 to about 3.7 with different acids. This will prevent some bacterial growth and will give a tart flavor or a zing. And then you basically pump it into a barrel. Most wines are less than one degree bricks before pumping the barrel, but if you're doing a sweet wine, it's probably above one degree bricks, and you stabilize it with a potassium sorbate. Now most barrels will have a bubbler on top. This releases that carbon dioxide that's formed during ethanol production. It is really important though, the chemicals and where they're located in the grape and how they're pressed. So seeds will give you, seeds and stems will give you tannins. The skin will give you all of those compounds, the catechins, the tannins, this veritrol, the quercetin, the anthocyanins, all those antioxidants and flavor compounds. So tannins are very important. They're a plant polyphenol, and they bind and precipitate proteins and other compounds. Bad tannins, you don't want them. You don't want the bad tannins from the seeds and skins and stems. They don't polymerize. They don't make things taste good. They have an astringent taste. But there are beneficial tannins. These are usually coming from the oak barrels that wine is put in to ferment. This can be, these can be preservatives. And what they often do is they preserve 
they preserve and uh, clarify wine prior to fermentation. They use things called fining agents. These are proteins that will bind to the tannins that are not necessary, the, the tannins from the skins, the seeds, and the stems, and they'll clarify the wine. So some binding agents or fining agents could be egg whites, gelatin, uh, compounds like bentonite. So it will make a cloudy wine into more of a clear wine. And the younger the oak barrel, the more tannins in, in the wine that you'll have. Now, because of the, the complexity and the, uh, the binding of proteins, red wines you often hear pair with meat, that's because of those tannins. Because those hydrolyzable tannins bind really well to proteins, so they kind of match each other as a lock and key and they taste good together. And as tannins age, they lose their binding and they fall to the bottom of the bottle. And the wine will then start to mellow. In the grape skin and the seed, you also have catsikins. These are flavanols. These are some of the things that are also found in chocolate. They react with tannins to make primary flavor components in wine. And the larger flavanols, they complex with the tannins and they make it more mellow. The smaller flavanols complex with tannins and tend to be a little bit more bitter. And you'll have catsikins in red wine from anywhere 10 milligrams per liter to 250 milligrams per liter. And the lighter the body wine, the more catsikins uh, in the wine. Then you have anthocyanins. These are water-soluble pigments, red, purple, blue, and they're flavonoids and antioxidants as well. They're odorless and almost flavorless, but they polymerize with the tannins. And it's very important in tannin retention and aging of wine to have these anthocyanins complex with them. And there are five groups of anthocyanins, and their presence depends on the varietal and the grape. So you have uh, a higher content of free hydroxy groups, then you have a blueness. Uh, a higher concentration of methyl groups will give you a redness to it. Uh, if you have something called the Malvin group, those are mostly from the red grapes. Then you have quercetin. It's a flavonoid antioxidant and it's found in the skin of the grape. It reacts with the anthocyanins and will give you that deeper, vibrant color. And then you hear about resveratrol all the time. You will see it in the in the nutritional uh, magazines and you see it on store shelves in the vitamin section. This is that wonder antioxidant. It's a phenol that's produced by plants when under attack by bacteria and fungi. And it's found on the skin of the grape. It works uh, in conjunction with quercetin and as an antioxidant and has a lot of health benefits to it. You also find the, the resveratrol in some chocolate complexes as well. You also have some other compounds on the skin and the seeds. You'll have gallic acid, some succinic acid. This is a flavor component. It's a salty, bitter flavor. Uh, you get also things like the cinnamits. They'll give golden colors or, or flavors in, in wine. And so you have all these different compounds that will alter the way uh, wine is sensed by smell, the way it tastes, the way it interacts with its proteins and, and other compounds. What's really important to wines, though, are acids. There are some primary acids in making wine. Malic acid. Malic acid comes from the, the, the word for apples, so it's considered to be the apple acid or tartaric acid. There are also other acids like acetic acid, absorbic acid, butyric acid, citric acid, which we know from uh, citrus like lemons and limes and oranges, lactic acid, which we know from milk, uh, sorbic acid. One of the most important wine acids, though, is the tartaric acid. It maintains chemical stability in wine and influences taste and color.
Now, grapevines are one of the very few sources of really high concentrations of tartaric acid. And if you've ever used cream of tartar or the potassium acid salt of tartaric acid, then you have actually interacted with this tartaric acid. During fermentation, the acid binds with the pulp debris and the tannins and the pigments. The acid crystals then precipitate out what you call wine diamonds. If you've ever seen the, the leftovers from making wine, they, they look like crystals. They're dark ruby colored or dark colored. And uh, you can actually precipitate out the crystals of tartaric acid. Another acid I said is important is the malic acid, the, the, the apple acid. It has a tart taste. It's associated with green apple flavor. Now, something like a Riesling will have high malic acids. And cooler growing conditions increase the malic acid. And it will decrease as the grape ripens. So as a, a grape ripens, it tends to lose that fresh, tart apple taste. If it's really low in malic acid, though, you'll get a, a kind of a flat taste. But if you have high malic acid, you'll have a little bit of a bite. So think of a good white wine with a bite to it, that kind of apple crispness, that Chardonnay kind of crispness. Then you're talking about the malic acid. Then lactic acid. As I said, you kind of think about that with milk. And that's often very controlled by the winemaker. It kind of gives you that milky flavor. And you have to be very, very careful with that because you don't want it to be stinky or you don't want it to be cheesy. So there are some uses in some Chardonnays and some other whites where you kind of want a little bit of a buttery uh, flavor to wine. And then citric acid. Sometimes they'll use a little bit of citric acid and sometimes they'll use it as a supplement when you put sucrose in to, to boost the ethanol content. Now, acetic acid, they try really hard not to uh, add acetic acid. And you really don't want acetic acid or the acetobacter to create acetic acid because that's when you get that vinegar taste to your wine or when your wine starts to turn. Asorbic acid is where you'll find some vitamin C. It's found often in very young grapes. And as the grapes ripen, you tend to lose that vitamin C. Now, there are a couple of acids that you really don't want, some that are called faults in wine. One of them is butyric acid. Now, butyric acid smells like rancid cheese or blue cheese or butter. And if you smell that, some native bacteria has gotten into the wine and has converted uh, the compounds in the wine to butyric acid, and you kind of get that kind of nasty, rancid smell to it. Now, I gave you the chemistry of a grape. How about the chemistry in a glass? A glass of wine, again, is about 70 to 90% water, anywhere from 6 to 23% ethanol or alcohol, depending on your variety, uh, 1 to 3% of proteins, acids, and pectins, 1% of minerals and vitamins, and then another 1% of all those flavonoids, those polyphenols, the flavonoids, the tannins, and all those other flavor compounds. Now, an important part of the process, as we said before, are the tannins. And you don't want the tannins from the skin as much as you want the tannins from the barrels. And there are two major origins for, uh, for oak barrels, French oak barrels and American oak ba barrels. The French oak are traditionally aged or seasoned for two years, where American oak barrels are often put into a kiln or an oven to be dried. The French oak is often split, using an axe, an American oak barrel is often sawed. Now this uh, causes the xylem cells or the cells of the wood to actually be broken open and release lactones or some of some butter kind of creamy smells and flavors. 
So you have a lot more flavor in an American oak uh, barrel and a little less flavor in the French oak barrel because you have two to four times more lactones or those vanilla creamy flavors in those sod barrels. Oak barrels were first used during the Roman Empire and there are over 400 species of oak around the world but only 20 species are used for wine barrels and it takes one tree to make two wine barrels and only 5% of the oak trees of, that are selected are ever used for wine barrels. As I said, the oak barrels are the source of tannins. New barrels have a lot of high tannins, um, but you don't want a green oak. You don't want something that's green or, or really new because that has some of the bad tannins in it. Older barrels, if they've been used many, many times, you lose some of those tannins. And the, the oak barrels allow a certain um, oxidation and evaporation, they're porous. So you lose anywhere from five to six gallons of your liquid, about 59 gallons per barrel, you lose that through evaporation. They call that the angel share. Now you have about three to five vintages in an oak barrel before the oak character of the barrel totally leaves. And you can also then add staves or oak strips to an old barrel to kind of refresh and impart the oak uh, impart the aroma again. You can also uh, sand some of the oak barrel to open up the pores and revitalize an oak barrel. Oak barrels are toasted, which means they expose the oak barrel to fire and high temperature. It can reduce those lactones, those fresh oak aromas, those vanilla odors. It can increase some of the caramel aromas. It could also, high toast levels will give some spice and some smoke to it. Things like guayacol and eugenol and isoeugenol, those will give you those smoky flavors. And if you don't do that to the barrel, you can also get the same effect by adding oak chips to increase the aroma. So you can do toasted oak chips to it. Now there was a, a time where you would have to rack your, your barrel or separate the wine from the solids. Uh, that's called racking, where you would have to do it at certain times of the year, or you'd have to do it during certain times of during the day. They would call it barking at the moon. It referred to the process of racking the wine under a clear light of the full moon. That was the best time to rack your wine. Then you bottle your wine. You rinse your bottles. You, you use a potassium metabosulfate just to, to kill off any of your bacteria. You dispense your wine into bottles, and then you put your corks in with as little headspace as possible. You don't want a lot of uh, aromatic compounds getting into that headspace. And then you put your seal on the bottle. Now, most of us, when they, we think of a bottle of wine, we think about a cork. Well, corks are made primarily from the cork oak. Uh, they're about 25 years old before cork is stripped from the trunks and they strip it every 10 years. And these trees can live for about 200 years. Most of the world's cork production happens in Portugal with about 53% of the corks coming from Portugal, about 30% from Spain, and the remainder coming from Italy and all around, around the world. Unfortunately, natural cork can be subject to cork taint. Now, the cork industry claims about only 1% of corks suffer from cork taint, but this is because of TCP compounds or trichlorophenyl compounds. And they're found in cork by fungi who methylate these compounds, and you get something called TCA or trichloroanisole. This will give you a moldy odor, a moldy taste. And human detection for cork taint is, is pretty significant. Humans can taste one part per trillion of cork taint in our wine. Some winemakers have 
eliminated this by using synthetic corks or screw caps. But that also eliminates that pop when you use a screw cap. You don't get that satisfying pop of a screw cap on wine. Now you can store wine indefinitely as long as it's stored properly. Now the Titanic actually sits 12,000 to 13,000 feet below the ocean surface, but many of the wine bottles they found in the cellar were actually still intact. Most modern wine though is basically purchased and consumed about 24 to 48 hours after purchase. So they call it uh, near-term consumption. Some important factors when storing wine is that light can react with the phenolic compounds and temperature can increase different chemical reactions. So every eight degrees in temperature, you actually double the chemical reaction. So you want to ideally keep your wine about 10 to 15 degrees. And you want to keep uh, your wine when you're storing it in a place that has some high humidity because you don't want those corks, those, especially those natural corks, to dry out. So wine refrigerators, wine cellars will keep constant light, constant temperature, and constant humidity. Now, how many of you have let your wine breathe or you've used an aerator on your wine? Well, you do this um, mostly on red wines because it will remove some hydrogen sulfides from stinky or, or red wines. It, it lets the oxygen into the wine. An aerator uh, uh, mixes, uh, actively mixes the wine. And it helps, and like I said, some of these stinky or young reds. It doesn't always help whites. You can do it, but there are less compounds that are, are going to react with the air or the oxygen. Now, hopefully, you'll be enjoying a, a glass or two of wine in the future, and you'll think back to all the chemical compounds that make up the chemistry of wine and all the steps that are part of the process of the art and chemistry of wine. We hope you've enjoyed our talk about wine, and we look forward to you turning, tuning in sometime in the near future. Thank you for tuning in to Spec Speak Science. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find content similar to this, such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more at specsertiprep.com. Please feel free to like and subscribe to Spec Speak Science wherever you find your podcasts. From all of us at Spec Prep, we thank you for tuning in and look forward to bringing you future episodes.